This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. I'm Shayna Roth, and this week we're talking all about the environment. And to do that, we're going to bring on one of the best environmental reporters in town, Bridge Michigan's reporter Kelly House. Kelly, welcome to Mishmash. Thanks, Shayna. Good to be here. So we're still easing into the new year here on Mishmash. So I wanted to start out by asking What are the major environmental concerns and stories in Michigan that happened in 2022 but are going to carry over in 2023? Well, one thing that comes immediately to mind is clean water. You you could say that of many of the past several years, but, you know, last year uh, there was the Benton Harbor water crisis. Uh, Communities across the state continue to struggle with a 20-year deadline that's ticking to replace lead surface lines. A lot of communities across the state are starting to see basically crumbling infrastructure from decades of neglect. There was a big glug of money dedicated to those kinds of efforts last year. It still pales in comparison to the scale of the problem, and I think everyone recognizes that. And it's likely that those conversations will continue this year, both in terms of how do we ensure clean water and what sort of water spending might be part of the legislature's efforts to spend a $6 billion surplus that the state has. Another thing, I think line five is a perennial issue that isn't going away. The controversy about it is not going away, at least. I don't think that there's going to be a ton of movement on it politically anytime soon because it's so tied up in the courts right now, but certainly continue, it will continue to be a hot button issue. And then climate change, you know, I'm looking out my window right now and it's raining in Lansing in January. You had a piece come out just this week in Bridge. The headline is Michigan Democrats aiming to erase business friendly environmental laws. Obviously, Democrats are now in charge of the state legislature as well as the governor's office. What are these business friendly environmental laws that you're talking about and why do they want to get rid of them? One thing that was um, you know, made clear to me as I was reporting this story was that as much as this new legislature is going to be about, you know, enacting maybe democratic priorities, there's a lot of attention being paid to efforts to reverse policies and and laws that were crafted over the past couple of decades that maybe were seen as anti-environment or prioritizing business over environment. So some examples of that that I've heard come up as, you know, possibly being in the crosshairs, um, the ban on plastic bag bans that was a couple of years ago that was a controversial and the various panels that were enacted in the Snyder administration that gave businesses new seats at the table in state decision-making processes. A lot of environmental groups referred to them as, quote, polluter panels. I've heard about some appetite from some Democratic lawmakers to try to get rid of those. On top of that, though, I think there's a lot of appetite for climate regulation of various kinds to oversimplify and overgeneralize. Businesses tend to not support more regulation. In many cases, environmentalists support more regulation. So examples of that include the possibility of a renewable energy standard that would require utilities to, you know, have benchmarks for how much renewables they're going to have in their portfolio and by what time um, 
more regulations around what the EV electric vehicle build out looks like in Michigan, things like that. You mentioned line five, which is an issue that is been going on for years that I reported on. And speaking of issues that I have reported on that are still going on, there is a compact between the state and Michigan tribes over fishing access in the Great Lakes. It's a story we've covered a couple of times here on Mishmash. And it looks like after years of trying to work this out, a deal may have been struck. Kelly, can you tell us a little bit of background on this deal to refresh our memories and then walk us through what the proposed deal is that's going to impact, you know, 24 years worth of fishing access in the Great Lakes. Yeah. So Shana, as you know, from your past reporting, you know, Michigan has um, sovereign tribes that are party to a treaty um, that ceded some of their territory, but retained various rights, including the rights to fish in the Great Lakes. And that has in recent decades, been divvied up through this consent decree that basically allocates fish in parts of the Great Lakes between tribal anglers and state-regulated anglers. The existing decree was meant to be a 20-year agreement that expired a couple years ago. Negotiations have been ongoing and sort of repeatedly missing deadlines to wrap up, um, which signaled to a lot of people the fact that it's getting more difficult to divvy up a resource that's growing more scarce. Since that initial decree was enacted, you know, we've had massive ecosystem changes in the Great Lakes. The overall biomass of fish um, has suffered because of things like invasive mussels. So you have the various interests here competing for a piece of a a pie that is smaller than it used to be. Fast forward to last month, most of the parties involved said, hey, we we agree to this new framework. Um, Not all, the Sioux tribe um, uh, up in the Upper Peninsula is not signing on to this new um, proposed decree. And it's not clear what that might mean. A judge will be considering, I think, how to address that. The Sioux tribe um, at one point said, we want to be able to regulate our own fishery. We don't want to be part of this multi-party agreement. The other parties to this agreement, other tribes in the state and the feds and the state government say that they want this to be, you know, they would essentially like the Sioux tribe to be um, falling under this agreement too. Um, The substance of this new agreement changes certain aspects of the way um, fish are divvied up. So the big difference would be expansion of gillnet use in certain areas and at certain times. That's something that the tribes wanted. And gillnets are a type of fishing equipment that they're cheaper uh, to use than the nets that that are currently more prominent. And um, they, but they've also been criticized for having more bycatch, in other words, netting more fish that are not your intended target and those fish die. Um, so there, there's contention around expanded use of those, but what would not change is sort of how the year-to-year allocations or fish allocations are set. You know, there would still be 
points in time, I think it would be every three years now, actually, where there would be a review of, okay, how many fish are in, you know, are available, who should get access and what are your quotas? So you mentioned that the Sioux tribe is not on board with this proposed deal. What has been the reaction of of other tribal members and other really members of the angler community and just the community at large? Like, what has the general reaction to this proposed deal been? You know, there's still quite a bit of tight-lipped stance going on. This is is still a proposal, and which means that negotiations aren't necessarily completely over. They're confidential negotiations. So, you know, I, I haven't been able to get any response from the Sioux tribe about, you know, what their official statement or stance is. Other parties have said, you know, we, we support this agreement. It represents a compromise on all sides, and we would like the Sioux tribe to be a part of it recreational and charter fishing groups, which are not part of the negotiation and therefore have more freedom to be vocal, um, have definitely been more vocal and um, are opposed to the agreement as it stands now. Their argument is that, um, you know, they they, they fear uh, the use of gill nets will interfere with um, their interests, they worry about the resource being diminished. And in court, they have asked to be made a party to the negotiations. So that's another moving piece that will have to be sorted out. Um, Right now, it sits in an appeals court. And last I checked, there hadn't been movement on it. But I would assume that the judge that's um, also going to be deciding whether or not to approve the proposed agreement will have to sort out that piece, that challenge from recreational fishing interests. A very different legislature, as we've mentioned, is going to be taking control in Lansing. And obviously, Democrats have very different priorities, attitudes, philosophies when it comes to the environment than Republicans did. Let's talk through how things might change on a few key issues. And let's start with climate change. What do you think we can expect to see this new government do when it comes to combating climate change? I think we can definitely expect this new government to do something. The what is still pretty unclear. So you have Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who has said repeatedly that, you know, in her second term, she wants to codify um, a lot of the recommendations she made in her climate action plan things that plan includes things like a renewable energy standard, like um, incentives for EVs, but a lot of the things that it it recommends would require some sort of legislative action to make it law. Um, I asked the governor shortly after she, she won the election what specifically she wanted to prioritize, and she essentially said, you know, we're still figuring it out. I got the same response, in essence, from democratic legislative leaders, that they're still sort of deciding what their priorities are, but that climate itself is a priority. Um, Some individual lawmakers and certainly environmental groups are crafting more specific wish lists. Um, So, you know, talking with the Michigan Environmental Council, they want to see negotiations over sort of a big comprehensive energy package that would include things like a renewable energy standard, but also um, things like who gets to participate in the solar, you know, panel build out and 
who who gets to decide when local opposition can quash you know a, a proposal for a solar array so i think we're we're very likely to see lots of discussion of you know both regulations and incentives for this big energy shift that's coming what about electric vehicles? That kind of goes hand in hand with all that. And I know that there has been a shift towards and Whitmer has supported a shift towards recognizing that electric vehicles might just be the future of vehicles. Is Are we going to be seeing that as more of a priority? And have you heard anything about any specifics with electric vehicles? Yeah. Um, and that's one area where I you know, oftentimes utilities and um, environmental groups can be at odds in these discussions. Um, that was one area where I heard similar things from both utilities and environmental groups that, you know, we have a lot of ways to incentivize the electric vehicle build out, you know, and there are just this year, some new federal um, tax incentives for people who want to buy EVs went into effect. What we have less of are goalposts that are actionable that say, you know, okay, auto industry, you need to have this many EVs on the road by this time, or okay, utilities, you need to be prepared for this many EVs on the road by this time. You know, from both of those camps, I heard some desire for that. It is going to be not just a shift in terms of manufacturing and all of the jobs associated with that, but also if people's cars are powered less and less by gas and more and more by electricity, that's a huge addition to the burden on our energy grid, which, which then feeds back into, you know, how quickly um, we can start building solar panels and wind panels and anything else that would get us off of coal and natural gas. That's, I mean, I feel like, I mean, that's so interesting because that's like one area I had not considered was the electric grid. You think about like, oh, well, we need more, uh, you know, electric vehicle power stations if we're going to have more electric vehicles. But like my thinking on it hadn't really gone much past that to think of, oh, if everybody's got electric cars, you need a way to charge them, which as we've seen in some states, if you put too much pressure on the electric grid, it's a problem. Yeah. And talking with some of the utility spokespeople, they did make the point that it doesn't matter it doesn't just matter how much electricity, you know, what the demand is spread out over 24 hours, it's when that demand is happening. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to create the impression that we're going to need to build out like a bunch of power plants all of a sudden, because in most cases, people will be charging their vehicles at night when they are in bed and they're not really using their appliances and everything else. Um, so some of the existing power generation resources that we have right now will just be able to be, you know, used at different times of the day when right now there isn't a lot of demand. But yeah, certainly navigating that huge shift in electric demand is going to be important, both in Michigan and nationally. And I think part of that is why you're hearing utilities say like, yeah, we wouldn't mind some guidance that tells us what we need to do and when. One more. What about recycling. Before the holiday, you reported on what was being touted as, as a pretty big recycling reform package, but critics called it, as you quote in your article, burning hot garbage. What was the package and are we going to see more of this? Yeah. So that was part of um, 
a big bipartisan package that amended Michigan's solid waste laws in a whole bunch of different ways, but the theme behind it was setting up Michigan's solid waste system to get better at recycling and, you know, send fewer things to landfill. Um, and it kind of just like sat in committee for a long time, didn't really move. And then it moved all at the very end of the legislature. But um, some different language was inserted uh, at the 11th hour that ticked off a lot of the environmentalists who, you know, felt like this was passed with bipartisan support. It was it was sort of negotiated openly. Now there's a bait and switch happening. Um, you know, the counterpoint to that from from supporters of some of that language was we're just looking to make some language tweaks. It doesn't fundamentally change the substance of the bill. Ultimately, this bill passed and it does things like disincentivizing sending waste to landfill, creating more opportunities for grants that would support efforts around expanding recycling, um, and then requiring local uh, local governments to have plans around how they're going to expand recycling. So it really moves everything in a different direction in a state that has, you know, some of the lowest landfill tipping fees in the nation and, and where you're accepting trash from out of the country, you know, it tries to steer us more toward uh, avoiding putting things in landfills. The issue was around this language that defines what's sometimes called chemical recycling, efforts that take in hard to recycle plastics and use heat or other methods to transform it into other substances. Um, proponents of that say, you know, hey, we need to do something with this hard to recycle plastic and this gives it a use other than going to the landfill. Opponents argue that, you know, one, these technologies are unproven and there, are, there have been examples of them basically failing and resulting in all of that material just getting incinerated. Um, and two, you know, from their perspective, it sort of provides cover for the continued production of more plastic when they believe we should just be finding ways to use less to begin with. So we don't need these alternative markets for our waste. The package passed, so that part is done, but I have heard from some of the folks who were frustrated with that new language that they you know, are interested in coming back this legislature and maybe tweaking that language or having some other discussions about what chemical recycling means for Michigan, how it should be regulated, that sort of thing. Kelly House is the environmental reporter for Bridge Michigan. Kelly, it has been such a joy to have you here on Mishmash. Thanks, Shane. I appreciate it. Thank you again to Kelly House from Bridge, Michigan for lending her expertise today. Mishmash is produced by WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This episode was produced by myself, Shana Roth, and the always incredible Hearns Laguerre Jr. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and our podcast manager is David Lyons. Our digital team is Dave Kim and Sophia Joswiak, and our podcast interns are Ashley Harris, Patrick Burness, and Jack Philbrandt. 
As always, if you listen to this podcast and you want to support it, you can do so by leaving us a review that helps people find us. Or if you really, really like this podcast, and I really, really hope you do, you can support WDET. Just go to WDET.org slash give. Without your support, this show is just not possible. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.